Let's read Psalm 90 together. This is God's word for us this morning. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, or but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We believe you have spoken to us in ancient documents. And yet, we believe you speak afresh in the preaching of your word as it's true and accurate. So first, Lord, I pray for truth and accuracy. I pray you'd keep me from saying anything that's not true. I pray you'd keep me from saying anything that's unhelpful. I pray, Lord, this would be true and helpful to your people and to those here who aren't yet Christians, but perhaps in your goodness and mercy, today would be a day of salvation for them. Today would be the time that they come to believe and trust in Jesus' blood and righteousness for their salvation. Lord, we thank you for that salvation. Thank you for your great purposes to show yourself. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to meet together and to give thanks to you, to sing praises to your name, to declare your steadfast love, to talk of your faithfulness, to put truth to music and musical instruments. What else could we do? Lord, you've made us glad. You've made us glad by your work. We thank you, Lord, for the work of your hands and in those works, Lord, we sing for joy. We say, how great are your works, O Lord, and your thoughts are very deep. We pray, Lord, you would share some of your thoughts with us today, that we would think your thoughts after you, that we as Christians would be shaped into the image of our Savior, that you would move us today from one degree of glory from one degree of glory to another. We pray, Lord, we would taste and see that you're good. 
We pray all these things for your glory and because of Jesus who died in our place and is our Savior and King, risen and living forever. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we've read Psalm 90. Last week we looked at Psalm 90, but mainly focusing on the first 11 verses. This week, as I said last week, I want to look at Psalm 90 again and focus mainly on the rest of it, verses 12 to 17. Before we get to that, though, let me summarize what we saw last week and maybe add a little bit to it. Last week we saw that the dilemma that Psalm 90 seeks to address is the dilemma of disappointment. I still think that's true after a week of thinking about it, praying about it, studying it some more. But I'd like to put a finer point on it this week. I think more specifically, Psalm 90 wrestles with the issue of futility, a certain kind of disappointment. So verses 2 through 11 explore disappointment. They entertain the question of futility. Then verses 12 to 17 turn a corner and fight against the disappointment, the question of futility. Verses 12 to 17, our verses for this week, confront a feeling of futility. They offer another interpretation to the reality that Moses has experienced and that we know ourselves. We know feelings of disappointment. We know feelings of futility or emptiness, meaninglessness, feeling useless. No surprise then that there are many figures in the Bible who wrestled with these feelings of futility, disappointment of a specific kind, feeling like what has come before was of no value whatsoever, that it had no meaning for what's ahead. Job is one of these stories. His godliness seems futile to him because he's getting, well, trials worse than anyone he knows or anyone he's ever heard of. The help, the so-called help from his wife and the so-called help from his friends is futile. It doesn't seem to do anything, get him anywhere, even when he occasionally entertains their thoughts and explores their, the truth of their ideas. Even Job's clamoring for getting a hearing before God. Remember that part of Job? So much of the middle of Job is, if I could only get God in a courtroom, and I'd plead my case and he'd plead his case, then I'd get vindicated and this stuff would stop. But all his vindicating, all his uh, rather clamoring, is futile. That's not where it ends. It ends on a great note. But so much of the book, the first 37 chapters of the book, are futility. The story of Solomon, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes, is an exploration in futility. He's on the hunt for satisfaction. He's on the hunt for that triad, truth, beauty, goodness. So, the book of Ecclesiastes, he says that he pursued things that were new, new music and new 
art, new beauty. Ever noticed how you long for a new album? Maybe you don't. Maybe you're not a music guy. I'm a music junkie. I'm always just itching. I feel like there's a, a, a scratch that I can't itch, no matter how many albums I buy. They so quickly go in and out, and what's next? The new doesn't satisfy. Even when it's good, it doesn't satisfy fully or, or forever. So Solomon pursues knowledge to the nth degree. And he finds that that's emptiness as well. He pursues pleasures of various kinds. Some simple pleasures. Some more refined pleasures. He pursues possessions and lots and lots of possessions. He may have been the richest man who's ever lived. But he went to the end of that road... And it too was a dead end. It was a ghetto of the soul. He pursued accomplishments. He pursued fame. And the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes is stated up front and then repeated all throughout. It's this. Vanity of vanities. Emptiness of emptinesses. All is vanity. I've seen everything that's under the sun, and I've had the wherewithal to pursue everything, at least the big things, the hallmark things, to the nth degree, to the end of the street. I've seen everything that's under the sun, and behold, it's all vanity. It's all like grasping after the wind. Futility. And we saw last week that Moses is a story of disappointment and futility. If you were here, you remember we went to Numbers 20, one of the darkest chapters of Moses' life. There, there are at least five disappointments, one right after another in one chapter. The death of Miriam, his sister, one of the co-leaders of Israel. Moses, Miriam, and Aaron sort of make up the three musketeers of Israelite leadership. There's that disappointment, her death. Then there's the people's unending complaints, their unbelievable unbelief. There's the story of Moses striking the rock to provide water for the people. And it's a little bit mysterious. Somehow he doubts the Lord when he strikes the rock or does something the Lord didn't tell him to do. He didn't trust the Lord completely somehow, some way. And for that, the Lord will not let him enter into the promised land, that thing that he's been pursuing with vigor, painstakingly been pursuing all his life. The king of Edom in that chapter won't let the Israelites pass through his land. He says, you touch my land, I'll kill you. Which seems like a minor inconvenience that they have to walk around his land, go the longer route to go where they're going. But... It's not just an inconvenience. It also shows something of the compounding weariness of being nomads, of being homeless, of being millions of people in a desert, and you're not even offered the pass-through from the king of Edom. And then the death of Aaron, Moses' brother, his right-hand man. Aaron will die and not be able to see the promised land. And for one reason, because the same reason Moses will not be able to see or enter the promised land, 
because of that incident with the rock. And Moses, I said last week, has to go on. He has to live out more chapters of life. He may have wanted to go to be with the Lord of Miriam, and he may have wanted to die with Aaron, but no. And so he writes Psalm 90. So let me summarize more of what we saw specifically in Psalm 90 last week. Let me summarize what we saw in those first 11 verses with two short sentences you see in your sermon notes right at the beginning. The first is that life is short. That's one way to summarize verses 2 through 11. Life is short. God is eternal. He's unchanging. He's solid. He's reliable. He is infinitely strong. And by contrast, we are weak. We are fragile. We are ever-changing. Our lives are fleeting. Life is short. So, remember, verses 5 and 6, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, our lives. Like grass that's renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Our lives are like rain coming down on grass, it bursting forth with energy and greenness and life. And just by the afternoon, it getting burnt up with the scorching sun, and it's dead. My buddy Ron Seaman likes to talk about your dash. By that, he means that line on the gravestone between your birth date and the date of your death. It's wise to think about your dash, what goes into that thing of your dash, what goes into life, what life is made up of. And as we'll see, as we go through this a little bit more, we'll see something very Psalm 90-ish about thinking about the dash and what the meaning is of that dash. But parts of Psalm 90 and the book of Ecclesiastes and elsewhere would also argue that regardless of what goes into your dash, it all ends the same. Humanly speaking, on an earthly level, yes, there's something more to say about what's after death, but regardless of what was in your dash or how rich it was, how full it was, how happy it was, how hard it was, how short it was, it all ends the same way. And Psalm 90 tells us that it all ends the same way because we all have the same root problem, starting with Adam and Eve, it's sin. So in verse 8 of Psalm 90... Moses says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, the ones no one knows about, even the ones we try not to acknowledge or remember, or even the ones we didn't know were sin, but were. Those secret sins are placed in the light of your presence. He knows them all. And because they're sin, there must be judgment before a holy God, and because There is judgment before a holy God. That judgment is death. That's why we die. And even before death, Psalm 90 tells us life is like a dream. It's like a blip on the screen. It's like flourishing one moment and fading and withering the next. A lot of the time we feel like our lives are, like Psalm 103 says, but dust. We are but dust on the scales. It all has a smell of futility about it. Our lives have the smell of death about them. 
Now, that's not the only thing the Bible says, but it is what the Bible says at times. And getting to the bottom of the truth of life starts by owning up to this, that there's a futility, a futility that we all know very well. When we'll let ourselves go there. The answer is not burying our heads in the sands of entertainment and distractions and buying and selling and getting and general busyness and empty laughs. Blaise Pascal in the 17th century wrote a book called Pensees, P-E-N-S-E-E-S. It's a, it's a wonderfully modern book. You won't believe how well Blaise Pascal in the 17th century pegs our entertainment distracted culture today. There are so many quotes I could give you from Blaise Pascal's Pensees, but here's one. He who does not see the vanity of the world is himself very vain. It's a shallow thing to not see how much of life is shallow. Pascal says, take away diversion and you will see those people dried up with weariness. He says we pursue entertainment like the way a king hires a court jester to distract from the reality of what's outside the palace. There is a smell of futility about life. Life is short, in other words. But... God is the goal, Psalm 90 says, right at the beginning of it, the very first verse. God is the goal. Moses words it like this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And as I said last week, that is amazing that Moses makes that kind of testimony. That Moses pens those words that God has been the dwelling place in all generations. Not the land, not the tabernacle, not eventually what's coming in the temple. Moses sees the true dwelling place not being a land or a tent, beautiful as that tent was. He sees the true dwelling place being God himself. And how could he say otherwise? He didn't get to go to the land. God forced his eyes upward. God is the goal, which means that his plan to rescue us from futility and judgment and death is nothing less than putting God back in everything. That's the way it was to be from the beginning. God in everything. God over everything. God filling everything. Like Paul wrote in Romans 11.36, that in Jesus, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. The rescue from futility is not in more education. The rescue from futility is not in balancing the budget. It is not in the next president. It is not in fixing the public schools. All those things are fine and good, and Christians are actually supposed to work at those things, not ignore those things. But that's not the answer to futility. 
We will not hit a utopia. World War II was supposed to be the war to end all wars. And they keep coming. The answer is God in everything. Our dwelling place. Really, our home. The Hebrew word means habitation. He's our home. We talked about this concept when we looked last week at Psalm 90, and I think two weeks before, we looked at Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is all about God being our dwelling place and wanting to be in his dwelling place with him. Home. God as home. What does home signify? Home is a place that's familiar, isn't it? It means rest. I know most Saturdays it doesn't mean rest. It means the honeydew list or gardening or something. But, but sometimes home means rest. It's a place that's home. I mean, sometimes, sometimes there are words that are so rich in meaning, you define them with the word itself. What is home? You would just say, well, I don't know. It's, it's just home. Home is home. Home means comfort and security. Home means fellowship and communion at its best. It means intimacy and joy. It means celebration. That's where we do our parties. It's home. And God is our home. But he's only our home through Jesus Christ and his cross. We could never come into his presence Apart from a payment being made, that's what the cross means. That's why Jesus came to die. Like it says in Ephesians 2.13, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, far away, you've been brought near, but brought near by the blood of Christ. There had to be a payment. He died in our place to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3 says, So read the story. If you're not a Christian, read the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You've probably heard that phrase before, the prodigal son. Maybe you've never read it. Go read the prodigal son. It won't show you why Jesus had to die, but it will show you the story of a son in rebellion, far off from his father, unworthy to come home, and the merciful father welcomes him And he is restored to full privileges in the home of the Father. That's the goal. God is the goal. He's not just the goal in the end, like the prodigal's a story about going to heaven. God is the goal in everything. That's why Paul said that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it to God's glory in him and through him. And to him are all things to him be the glory. God's the goal. If life is short and God is the goal, well, then certain things follow. So you notice in your outline, there's a therefore. Therefore, and that's what leads us to verses 12 to 17. Psalm 90 is often read at funerals, and sometimes even called the funeral psalm. It probably shouldn't be surprising since it bemoans death so much and it laments the brevity of life. It rings true in our experience when we've lost a loved one. But 
Psalm 90 is really for those who are still alive. It's not for those who've died. It's for those who are still alive. It teaches us what to do in light of someone else's death, in light of the brevity of life, in light of the fragility of our bodies and the weakness of our souls in our clamoring for satisfaction and meaning and beauty and truth. So, Psalm 90, verses 12 to 17, give us four priorities that God wants in us as Christians. Assuming you're forgiven, assuming the prodigal has come home and you're in the house with the Father. God has forgiven your sins. Jesus died for them on the cross. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. He's buried them like in the depth of the sea. In light of that, there are four priorities here in Psalm 90 in the second half. Four things that Moses prays for. Notice their prayers. And four things that we should pursue. So keep in mind that the dynamic between pursuing these things and praying for these things. That's a common thing in the Bible. This is two sides of one coin. That we're dependent on him, and yet we must do diligence to pursue it. You see it in Philippians 2. The pray and pursue dynamic, or the diligent and dependent dynamic. In verse 12, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're saved, work it out. Do it seriously, soberly, aggressively, thoughtfully, carefully, painstakingly. But the very next verse, for it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Pursue and pray. When we pray, we pray for his help, we pray that he would work in us, that he would will his good pleasure in us. So keep in mind the pray and pursue dynamic as we look at these four things, these four therefores. The first, we should pray for diligence and wisdom, verse 12 tells us. Pray for diligence and wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What's it mean to number our days? You might think it means count up how many have already come. Look back. Add up how old you are in days. That's not what it means, though. Actually, number our days literally has the idea of estimating what's left and then counting it down from there. So I'm 37, going on 38. That's the way it works. 38's after 37. And as a 37-year-old, I'm aware of the fact that I'm getting somewhere in the middle here. Moses says, doesn't he? Verse 10, some get 70 years. Some, if they're healthy as an ox, they get 80. Now, these are just rough estimates. He's just giving us averages. In fact, the averages still hold up somewhat. The average life expectancy in the U.S. these days is a little bit better than what Moses said. You might know it's 80 years now for women and 75 for men. But the average for the whole world today is actually lower than Moses' figures. The average life expectancy the world over is 67. 
So Moses is just doing that kind of thing. He's just giving us a ballpark, thumbnail sketch average of how long we usually live. And he's not telling us, he's not giving us this assignment of a literal countdown. Of, For instance, me looking at 75, I'm 37 now, you know, thinking, okay, 32, is that right? I didn't do the math before. What is it? 38 more years. Thank you. So I'm right at the halfway mark of 75. 75 and 37 and a half. We could count that down. I think it's something like 11,000s of days. 11,000 and something that's, that could be left for me. Now, on the one hand, it could be really helpful for me to see that number click down every day. Bruce Waltke an Old Testament scholar, he, he was known for doing this. Maybe he still does it. He's older now, very old. He was known for writing in his diary the number of what's left until he got to 75. I don't think Moses is telling us to do that, but it could be helpful to, to tick that down, to see that number drop and drop, especially when the thousand digit changes over. On the other hand, it would be presumptuous to really think that that's what we have. Moses isn't telling us what we're owed. He's not saying what's a given. Moses knows that some die at birth, some die even before birth. Moses himself lived past 80. So he's not giving us a literal countdown assignment. He's trying to show us life is finite. And even if you had a full life at 80... Or even if you lived as long as Methuselah at 1,000. That's like a watch in the night. It's like a day in the Lord's plan. So regardless of the number, the age, whether it's nine months or 99 years, the truth remains that life is soon gone. It flies away. It's like a sigh. It's like the grass that's there in the morning and gone by the evening. It's like, according to James 4, a vapor which appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James writes that in James 4 to teach us about presumption. He paints the picture of a man who says, I got a business plan. I'm going to go into that city, I'm going to buy and sell this product, I'm going to make a profit, I'm going to be there for just one year, and then I'm going to come back home. And James says, he should have said, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such. Because your boasting is in arrogance, and all your boasting is evil. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, your life is like a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. Let me encourage you to practice saying your plans with the footnote, if the Lord wills. I mean, literally do it. I actually think that this is not only helpful, but I I think it is biblical. I think James isn't just saying, in your mind you should know. Of course, the Lord can overrule my plans. I think he says you should get in the habit of saying, I'm going to do this tomorrow, Lord willing. I'm going to do this tomorrow, God willing. You know, it, it, that's, not, that's not being pessimistic. It's being realistic. 
Remember the story that Jesus told, a parable, in Luke 12? It starts out by him warning against all kinds of covetousness. He says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he launches into a parable about a rich man who's got so much, his barns are busting. So he decides to tear down his barns and build bigger barns for more stuff. And he says to himself, once that's all done, I'll say to my soul, there, now I have ample goods. I'm laid up for many years, so relax, eat, drink, be merry. And in this parable, Jesus says that God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. You're done tonight. So, the one who lays up treasure for himself is a fool. And he's not rich toward God. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And that same basic principle about time and being wise about time pops up again and again in the Bible. Psalm 39.4 says, Lord, make me to know my end and what's the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil day or hard days come. And the years draw near when you say, I have no delight in them. I pray often that the Lord makes me a happy old man. Apart from his grace, I won't be. I'll be a grumpy one. I don't like inconveniences. I don't like pain. I complain too easily. I want to be a happy old man. But you've seen some that aren't. Oh, by God's grace, there are some that are. Y'all work at Walmart, it seems. It's great. (laughs) The rest are grumpy, though. No, not all of them. But those days are hard. That's why Ecclesiastes 12.1 says what it does. Get right with God. Get things in perspective before you get old and rickety and grumpy. Ephesians 5.16 says we should be making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And just to round out the quotes here, let's hear from business leadership guru Peter Drucker. I have this quote in my study. Time is a unique resource. Of the other major resources, money is actually quite plentiful. People one can hire. But one cannot rent, hire, buy, or otherwise obtain more time. The supply of time is totally inelastic. No matter how high the demand, the supply will not go up. Moreover, time is totally perishable and cannot be stored. Yesterday's time is gone forever and will never come back. Time is therefore always in exceedingly short supply. Time is totally irreplaceable. Within the limits, we can substitute one resource for another. We can substitute capital for human labor. We use more knowledge or more brawn. But there's no substitute for time. All work takes place in time and uses up time, yet most people take for granted this unique, irreplaceable, and necessary resource. 
I don't know if Peter Drucker is a Christian or not. It seems like he's benefited from the wisdom of Moses. Teach us to number our days that we might pursue a heart of wisdom. We need perspective. That's where it starts. Lord, teach us. Teach us to number our days. Help us to think about where we are in this plan and how short it is and how it blows by and how it seems to go exponentially faster on the other side of the hill. The train picks up speed big time, doesn't it? I know I'm, I'm probably just starting to round out the top of that hill. And some of you are halfway down and your hair is blowing back fast and you're holding on for dear life. Praying you don't trip and break a hip and, you know, life is hard. It goes by quickly. We need perspective, and we need for that perspective to motivate diligence now. And we need for that diligence to be used to pursue wisdom. The wisdom which Proverbs calls the fear of the Lord. Right with our maker. Heeding his ways. And we need help with that. So it cycles back to teach us doesn't it? And we'll never be done until the Lord takes us home. Psalm 90 confronts the sins of youth and the sins of old age, generally speaking. Youth think that they have all the time in the world to do this or become that. I heard someone say recently, when I was a kid, Christmas came every three years. Now it comes every three months. It feels like you have all the time in the world to do this or become that when you're a kid. But Psalm 90 confronts that. It instructs you, young men, teenagers, to not waste time. It says, be busy. Be productive. Be thoughtful. Be serious about this. Put your head down and work. And mind your own business, a phrase Paul uses. You probably should play less video games. And you definitely should guard against the frivolity of tapping and flipping and scrolling on your phone all day long, never able to sustain a thought more than three seconds if that thought isn't scroll or click. Some of you need to move out of mom and dad's house. Some of you need to get a grown-up job. Some of you need to not go back for another degree. I speak from experience. But Psalm 90 confronts the sins of old folks as well. Again, generally speaking, old folks are often painfully aware of the passing of time, and they feel like, as I said, that train is picking up speed in the downslope of the mountain of life. And sometimes old folks are tempted to not only look back with nostalgia and a smile at the good old days, which are always better than you think they were, but sometimes they're also tempted to look ahead with bitterness and complaint and apathy. Old folks can be tempted to coast. And they can be tempted to sulk in feeling put aside, in feeling irrelevant and feeling less useful than they were. 
But Psalm 90, indirectly anyway, suggests something else. It doesn't hint anything like once you're in the last leg of the race, you might as well phone it in the rest of the way. That's it, just coast. No. But Psalm 90, and I have to say this before moving on, it also confronts the extremes, if we can put it that way. The extremes of, on the one hand, like those youthful sins, laziness, aimlessness, thoughtlessness. Those aren't always just the sins of youth. So let's take them out of the youth category and say, Psalm 90 confronts thoughtlessness and laziness and aimlessness regardless of your age. On the other hand, Psalm 90 should also confront hyper-obsessive time management. And in my culture, in my 30-something culture, my pastor-friend culture, that's the danger. Type A's, those who get it done, those who have achieved, they can pursue schedules with rigidity. They can... They can see a new rule, a new app as the answer for solving the problem. And sometimes we have to say it's vain for you to rise up early and to go to bed late eating the bread of anxious toil. Because he gives his beloved sleep. And he gives to his beloved even while that beloved sleeps. That's the first thing Psalm 90 in the second half teaches us. Diligence and wisdom, but also teaches us to pray for satisfaction and song. Verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Verse 15 says, make us glad. Moses prays what God has commanded. We are commanded to not just obey him and not just sing to him. We're commanded to be satisfied in him or to rejoice in him. It's all over the Psalms. Being glad, rejoicing, having joy. Commanded over a hundred times in this big book in the middle of our Bibles. Psalm 70 verse 4 says, May all who seek you, not just seek you, but rejoice and be glad in you. This is the one thing that David prayed for. Remember Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I've asked the Lord. And this is what I'll seek. That I can be near him. That I can dwell in his house. Gaze upon his beauty. And inquire in his temple. In other words, behold him. Know him. Be awe-stricken by him. In Psalm 73 It says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God's the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There are great promises attached to rejoicing in him and being satisfied in him. Psalm 34, verse 8, invites us, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Keep coming back to his buffet. It is deep and it is good. Blessed or happy. Happy is the man who takes refuge in him. 
It's the very nature of sin to not pursue God as our all. Jeremiah 2, God called on the heavens to be appalled, to be shocked, to be utterly desolate because his people had committed two evils. They had forsaken him, the fountain of living waters. Here refreshment, here satisfaction, here life-giving, sustaining waters there. They've forsaken the living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. They're looking for love in all the wrong places. Conversion is a turning to treasure him. Conversion hinges on this thing. Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable. The kingdom of heaven's like a treasure hidden in a field. And this man finds it, and then he covers it up, and he, and he goes and he sells all that he has to buy the field. Because he wants the field, because the treasure's in it. He wants the treasure. It's worth sacrificing much to get him. He is the treasure. And Jeremy Taylor in the 17th century, was right to say God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in him. That's foreign to our thinking. God threatens terrible things if we won't be happy in him? Well, that's not in the Bible, though. That's just some 17th century guy. And he wasn't even on the right side of the Puritan debate. He wasn't a Puritan. Well, listen to Deuteronomy 28, then. The Lord says... Because you didn't serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you'll serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he's destroyed you because you wouldn't serve him with joy and with gladness. So Moses prays this amazingly desperate and humble prayer request. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we might sing and be glad all our days. He knows that the Lord is steadfast in his love. He knows that he should be satisfied in it every morning, all the time, all his days. And yet, notice, he prays that God would satisfy him. That God would satisfy Moses with himself. Moses acknowledges that he doesn't, he doesn't satisfy himself with the Lord. Moses confesses that he can't get himself satisfied on his own. Could you imagine men saying to your wife, Honey, would you pray that I'd be happy with you? Honey, would, would you help me and pray with me that I'd be content with you? You better duck. <laughs> I do not recommend that kind of, well, honesty, if it's true in your home, it doesn't matter. Keep that one inside. Moses, though, is that honest with his God. God already knows. Moses is humble and desperate. 
And we should be too. We need to pray, verse 14, every morning. This is the battleground, friends. This is where it's at. This matters more than anything else you'll deal with tomorrow or the next day or next year. You must be satisfied in him. Oh, I know that until we see him face to face, we won't fully be satisfied in him. But we must pursue it. We must pursue it for our very lives. We must pursue it and pray that he would help us. If you memorize just one verse, I know you have plans to memorize more in 2012. I do too. But there have been some years, I bet, Christian, that you haven't memorized any. Memorize verse 14. That you'd be satisfied in him. Satisfied in his loving kindness. And satisfied in his loving kindness would lead to singing and singing and gladness all your days. Thirdly, Moses tells us to pray for God's glory and his power. It's related to what's above, so this one will be quick. But you see in verse 16, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Here's how he's praying God would satisfy him with his loving kindness. That God would work, that God would show that God would do, that God would reveal, and that Moses would see, and that this would get passed on, that the children would know. Which I think means for us today that we have to go looking in his word to see his glory and his power, his working, his serving, amazingly. On our behalf, we have to go looking in his word. We have to be on the watch in his world. We have to fight to see, to know that leaves are something like arrows pointing upward to a glorious God who is infinitely complex, who is clever beyond comprehension. We have to translate what we see and think into spiritual affections for him. That's why John Piper famously says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But to be satisfied in him, you have to see him. Pursue and pray that you would see, that he would show. And lastly, pray for efforts to be meaningful and lasting. Verse 17, the second half of it anyway, says, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Repeated for emphasis. What's that mean, establish the work of our hands? It means make our labors, our working, our efforts meaningful and useful and lasting. Now that prayer request, written by Moses back when he was alive, had a specific significance. It had a specific context. Moses was essentially saying, keep being good to us and don't let this thing end with a splat. What we've done, make it mean something. Use it. It means something in Moses' context, but it also has 
significance in any context for God's people today as well. As it says in Psalm 127, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. See the Philippians 2 tension there? You see, diligence and dependence. We must work. The laboring and the building are part of the equation. But it's not the sum total of the picture, our building, our laboring. He must ultimately build the house or watch over the city or its doom, no matter how skilled the craftsman, no matter how vigilant the watchman. In the New Testament, the words work and labor and striving, they have different connotations, different contexts. Sometimes it's used for your vocation, your occupation, that you should work heartily unto the Lord and not unto men, Colossians 3.23. Sometimes, though, the New Testament talks about working in terms of our holiness and growth. And there we could pray the same thing. Establish the work of our hands. We can read our Bibles and it doesn't seem to do anything, but we can pray at the end, Lord, establish the work of our hands. As we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, be working in us according to your will and according to your good pleasure. The Bible also talks about laboring and sacrificing, giving, taking risk, going, in terms of getting the gospel out there. Spreading the gospel in the world. It's our mission. And we should pray. Lord, that was a pathetic attempt to represent you in this world. But there was something there. Establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. We can pray this as a church. It applies to our giving. You give and you say, Lord, this isn't much. But establish the work of our hands, our serving, our coming. It may not feel like there's anything going on connecting heaven and earth right now or when we sing another song, but we can pray. Lord, establish the work of our hands, our loving and our leading, our praying and our worshiping. We can work and labor with eternal realities in mind. For his glory. It's laid out in his word. We can be satisfied in him. That's how we find joy. That's how we sing. May it be so all our days.